Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're playing an archive show from August the 13th, back in 2018. It was a good one. I hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. I'm ready whenever you are, Mr. Dillon. All right, let's go. in St. Louis, been out watching a little golf at the Belle Reve Country Club here in St. Louis. BGA tournament taking place here. Well, actually, I was watching it on television. The tickets are <laughs> way too expensive. But a beautiful weekend here in St. Louis, and uh, I'm glad to be back home. Had a wonderful trip to California, Carol and I, and I'll tell you about that in the weeks ahead uh, because we had a couple of experiences and um, some nice people to report on. But I will say this, I have four shows I want to play tonight, so we're very limited on time. Chester pulled a show out of um, his bag of tricks that I had not heard before, had not really been familiar with, and I decided I really like it, and I want to see if you like it too. So that's coming up just a little later on. So this is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the show where we play old-time radio programs we actually remember from when we're kids. And uh, tonight we have an episode of Dragnet that's very good. We have a Jack Benny show. We have an episode of Gunsmoke. And then we have our, our new show that, even though I don't remember it, I definitely remember the actor who starred in it. So that counts, okay? Well, make yourselves comfortable. Get uh, get yourself situated someplace and uh, maybe get yourself something cold to drink. Maybe sit out on the deck or the patio if it's uh, as beautiful where you are as it is here because we're going to get started in just a minute.
to get things started off with Dragnet this week, and this is a good one. This one goes back all the way to 1951. It was first heard on NBC on September the 13th of that year. Because it is one of the earlier episodes of Dragnet, it features Barton Yarbrough in, uh, in his role that he made uh, as Ben Romero. And he's a sergeant, so he has a little rank here. And um, this is about a murder that took place. And there's some... I, I particularly love the dialogue from the uh, German woman in this. German? I think she's German. At any rate, you'll know it when you hear it. And then, if it's not German, you'll think, Bob, you dolt. Don't you realize a Hungarian accent when you hear one? Or, But I think it's German. <laughs> At any rate, it's pretty good. And uh, this one will have you thinking a little bit. And it develops very logically. It's not real exciting. But it's procedural, and that's one of the things that made Dragnet so good. So here we go. Jack Webb is Joe Friday, and uh, Martin Yarbrough is uh, Ben Romero. And this episode of Dragnet from uh, September the 13th, 1951, it's entitled The Big Waiter. to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A 64-year-old shopkeeper is found murdered, beaten to death in the back room of his store. The body bears the marks of a savage attack. There's no trace of the killer. Your job? Get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. Wednesday, February 19th. It was cloudy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. We were on the way out from the office, and it was 10.56 p.m. when we got to 1016 South 12th Street, the Apex Men's Shop. Yes, sir? Friday and Romero, Central Homicide. ID card. Oh, yeah, Sergeant. Been waiting for you. Uh, my partner's upstairs in the back talking to the victim's wife. You answered the call, did you? Yeah, that's right. Miles and Kiever, Unit 16R. Who are you? Uh, Miles. Uh, Kiever's talking to Mrs. Wilford, victim's wife. She found the body. What's that up above? How's that? Music up there somewhere. Sounds like a party. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a dance place. It takes a hole up the floor of the building. A Wonderland Dance Hall, I think that's it. Mm -hmm. When was the body found, Miles? Do you know? Well, the wife wasn't very definite about it. She told us she came in the shop here about 10 o'clock tonight. The place was wide open. Nobody behind the counter. 
Said she looked around a while, finally found her husband's body in the storeroom back there. Nothing for a weak stomach. It's pretty brutal. What else do you have to say? Oh, not too much. She's pretty closed mouth. Probably the shock of finding her husband like that. I don't know. Do you want to show us where he is, Miles? Yeah, it's straight back this way. The uh, victim's name is uh, Joseph Wilfred. Owner of the store ran it himself. Wife says he's had the business here for 23 years. It's a typical men's shop. You can see that. Mm-hmm. It's around the left. In here. Hey, go ahead. He uh, used this for a storeroom, I guess. Uh-huh. Well, that's it. As far as we know, the body hasn't been touched. Yeah, sure took a terrible beating. An elderly man, huh? My wife said he was 64 last birthday. She couldn't think of any enemies he has. Anybody want to do this? Where'd he keep his cash? Did she tell you that? No, cash register, I guess. Can't be sure till late and Prince gets here. Yeah. Did you call the crime lab yet? I'm waiting for you fellas. You want to call him now? Would you mind? Oh, sure, sir. Say, you might as well call the coroner while you're at it. Tell him there's no big rush. Yeah, right. Take a look around here, Jill. Looks like a tornado ripped through. Yeah. Chair overturned. Flows all over the floor. Yeah. Come here, Ben. Mm -hmm. Look at the body. Yeah? His arms tied behind his back. Ordinary clothesline row. What's that cloth knotted around his neck? I don't know. Looks like it could be a woman's slip, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Whoever it was, they weren't taking any chances he'd live through it. The wounds on the head here, the neck, see? Yeah. Looks like he was stamped on by boots, something like that. Maybe a narrow heel. Sure brutal. It doesn't look too much like a robbery motive. Not from the beating he took, anyway. Huh? Yeah. Looks like he might have had a taste for art. All over the wall here, pin-up girls, fancy calendars. Yeah. Talk to the crime lab, Sergeant. On the way out. Oh, thanks, Miles. Notified Deputy Coroner. Anything else I can do for you? Yeah, would you mind getting the wife down here, Ms. Wilford? We'd like to talk to her. Sure, right away. Thank you. How's she feeling? Any hysteria? No, she's pretty quiet. She went upstairs to rest. A couple of housekeeping rooms up there. Guess that's where she and her husband live. Well, tell her if she doesn't feel too well, we, we could come up there and talk to her. Right, Sergeant. Right. Well, what do you think? I don't know. We'll see what the crime lab can come up with. We can start checking around the neighborhood after we talk to the wife, huh? Mm-hmm. Let me take a look here. What's that there? It's funny. Not much place in a haberdashery for things like this, huh? A woman's nightgown. Black lace, huh? Mm-hmm. Packed in a gift box. Is that a card there? Yeah. See if we can read it without touching it. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, to a beautiful girl, you've been away too long, hoping we'll never be parted again. It's signed, Joseph Wilford. Seems a little funny, huh? Yeah, it does. Maybe his wife's been on a trip. He's going to give it to her as a present. When's the last time you gave your wife a black lace nightgown? p.m. The two officers who'd answered the call, Miles and Keever, brought the victim's wife, Mrs. Agnes Wilford, downstairs, and Ben and I questioned her. She was a small, slight woman, dark hair, dark brown eyes, a sharp nose and chin. She looked to be in her early 50s. She said that both she and her husband had emigrated to America from northern Germany 25 years before. We asked her how her married life with Mr. Wilford had been, but she kept dodging the question. We asked her how she happened to find the body. The body's just as you found it, Mrs. Wilford. You didn't disturb anything? No, I just came back from a friend's and looked, and I saw him, and he was dead. Somebody killed Joseph. And you're pretty sure that your husband wasn't having any trouble with anybody? No enemies? 
No, he didn't have any enemies not to do this. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you lived upstairs in the back of the store with Mr. Wilford. Is that right, ma'am? For a long time, yes. We lived upstairs in the rooms. It was nice. Saved money for rent. Well, do you have any idea at all why your husband's dead? Why somebody would want to kill him? There was money in the store. They'd kill for that. You're a policeman. People kill for money. You know that. Well, do you know where Mr. Wilford kept his money, ma'am? There was a wooden drawer on the table in the back room. He would keep the money there. But I looked when I came in first. It was empty. Well, was there any money in that drawer tonight? Do you know that? Oh, yes. Three, four hundred dollars anyway. Joseph always kept it in there. A terrible place up above the music all the time, the noise. You should make them be quiet. The dance hall's been up there for a year tonight anyway. They should be quiet. Yes, ma'am. Uh, about the money Mr. Wilford had in the store. Maybe a thousand dollars. Seven, eight hundred, maybe that anyway. And then his wristwatch he had on, that's gone too. Well, can you give us a description of the watch, Mrs. Wilford? What make it was, what it looked like? Oh, yes, I can give that to you. It's white gold, expensive. Writing on the back, Agnes, Joseph. One birthday I gave it to him. Have you been away from your husband recently, ma'am? I mean, on a trip or anything like that? No, I haven't been away. Why? Well, we don't mean to upset you at a time like this, but... Would you know if your husband had any women friends? Miss Wilford? If you have a cigarette, I'd like one. Oh, yes, ma'am. Here you are. Thank you very much. Thank you for your light, Miss. Thank you. Hmm. Do we have to talk about it? I'm afraid so, ma'am. Most of them I know... For ten years it's been like this. There were many of them, young women. Joseph didn't try to hide it from me. I knew all about it. You continued to live with your husband all this time, ma'am? I did. He'd bring the girls to the shop here sometimes. When they'd come, I'd go away for a while. After they were gone, I'd come back. Joseph and I would never talk about it. You mean you never had any arguments with your husband about the women? No. He never lied to me about the girls. He had them, that's all. It was something he expected me to understand. Oh, I see. Uh, you say you knew several of these women your husband went out with. Could you give us their names, please? Yes, there's an address book upstairs in Joseph's desk. The names are in there. I see. Would you mind showing us that address book now, please? Yes, we can go upstairs. I'll get it for you. There's uh, one question I'd like to ask you, Mrs. Wilford. Yes. If you don't mind. Yes. About your husband, ma'am. I don't know. Hurt very much at first. And then by and by, it didn't hurt so much. Time, I guess. Habit. Beg your pardon? A habit. If you want to, you can get used to anything. Yes, ma'am. Even a man who doesn't love you anymore. went upstairs to the housekeeping rooms where Mrs. Wilford gave us her husband's personal address book. She also gave us a description of his wristwatch, which had been removed from the body along with the name of the jeweler who'd sold her the watch. It was a Hamilton with a diamond-studded dial. The crime lab crew arrived downstairs and began their routine investigation. We finished questioning the victim's wife, and then we started checking the neighborhood. Only a few of the stores in the area were still open. We found only one possible witness, a newsboy, who told us that he'd seen an attractive, dark-haired woman enter the store earlier in the night at about 8.30 p.m. His description of her was only sketchy. Another hour of checking the neighborhood, and we went back to the store. 
Lieutenant Lee Jones and the crime lab crew finished checking over the entire layout. They went back downtown to give a thorough examination to what physical evidence that they'd found. The deputy coroner arrived and removed the body. Together with Hubka and Forbes from Homicide, Ben and I spent most of the next day checking with store owners in the immediate neighborhood of Wilford's haberdashery. They could tell us nothing we hadn't already found out. We got the description and serial numbers of the victim's missing wristwatch, notified the pawn shop detail, and got out a broadcast on it. 3.45 p.m., we checked with the office. We've got a slow enough start on this thing, huh? Everybody tells us the same story. Yeah, seems to be pretty common knowledge. He had a lot of girlfriends. I guess we better start checking out the names in that address book, huh? Sure beats all, doesn't it, Joe? What's that? Mrs. Wilford, ten years, her husband's dating other women right in front of her. It isn't normal. Can't see why she didn't just pack up and leave. It's kind of hard to figure it that. Maybe she was still in love with him. I wonder how Forbes and Hubka made out. I'll check the book, see if we've got a call. Okay. See. No? No word from him, huh? No, Lee Jones called from the crime lab. Wants us to check with him. I'll call him. Okay, fine. Two six six seven, please. That's right. Guess we'd better check with the morgue, too, huh? See if they got the body posted yet? Yeah. Uh, I leave Romero. Uh, what was it? Did you get the name? I see. All right, uh, bye. What do you have? Lee talked to the coroner already. Wilfred died about 9 o'clock. Cause of death was strangulation. Mm-hmm. How about those wounds on the head and on the neck? That didn't do it. The cloth tied around his neck. It was a woman's slip, all right. Yeah. Did he pick up anything off it? Any laundry marks? He did better than that. Yeah? He got the name of the laundry. After checking for all stains and markings on the woman's slip, which had been found knotted around the murder victim's neck, Lee Jones had examined it under a special fluorescent light. He found a type of marking used by only one large laundry service in the city. We checked with the managers of the laundry company and found that the slip had been cleaned by them for a Miss Elise Dressler. She had a North Hudson Street address. We started checking on her. The first lead came from the dead man's personal address book. We found the name of Elise Dressler listed along with her address and telephone number. There was a single word scribbled beside her name and enclosed with parenthesis. It said Max. That was all. 5.42 p.m. We drove out to the address, a Spanish-style apartment house on North Hudson. We rang, but there was no answer. The apartment manager told us Miss Dressler worked as a dancer at a nightclub on West 7th Street. Ben and I drove to the club, a high-priced theater restaurant which was newly opened. We were told Elise Dressler wasn't due there until 9 p.m. We had a couple of ham and cheese sandwiches and some coffee at a lunch counter and we checked back at the club a few minutes past nine. The show was already started. We located the Dressler girl in her room backstage. She was a tall, fairly attractive blonde. We started questioning her. Can you tell us where you were last night, miss? Yeah, all right. Here, I work every night but Monday. We close then. What time did you get here last night? Just about eight o'clock. I had something to eat, and then I changed my costume and went to work. Do you know if Mr. Wilfred had any enemies? No. Maybe somebody he was having trouble with? No, maybe that wife of his. That's none of my business. I wouldn't know. You can't think of anybody at all who might want him out of the way? No, I don't think so. He and Max Hollins had some arguments, but that's the only time I saw Joe mad at anybody. Who's this Max Hollins? He's the man who arranged for me to come out from New York. Joe and Max have been friends for a long time. What were the arguments about, Miss Dressler? Do you remember? Yeah, about me. You see, Max brought me out here, and I suppose at first he thought he owned me. He didn't think I should go out with any other men but him. Max is stubborn sometimes. Well, so am I. I like Wilfred, so I went out with him. I went out with Max, too. Well, these arguments they had about you, would you say that they were pretty mad at each other, Max and this Mr. Wilfred? Only last week. Max was very angry with Joe, but I think he got over it. Uh, could we talk together later? It's almost time for me to go on. I'd better get outside. Oh, sure. Excuse me. Yeah, I'll get it. Okay. We'll wait backstage here for you, Miss Dressler. Is that all right? Yeah, fine. Oh, that's all right. I still have a few minutes. 
Well, how about the last time you were in Wilford's store, Miss Dressler? Can you remember that? Not exactly. At least six months ago. I hardly ever went to see Joe there. Did you ever have any occasion to leave any clothing with Wilfred in his store? Maybe for a cleaning alteration? No, I never left him. Maybe it's possible they could be there. How do you mean? Well, I have some nice slips, you know. First I sent them out, but Joe said he knew a very nice French laundry to do them. He'd come to my place, pick them up, and then take them to the laundry. Maybe he could have left them in his shop one day. Well, would anybody besides yourself have access to the clothes in your apartment? Maybe a roommate? No, I live by myself. I have the only key to the door except Max Hollins. He's got one. He lives in my apartment house, the upstairs floor. Nobody else has a key. Did you send in clothing to the French laundry with Mr. Wilford recently? Yesterday I did. Two nice slips of mine. But Joe Wilford didn't call for him. I sent him over with Max. How'd that happen? Max said he might as well take him. He was going down to that neighborhood by the haberdashery. Uh-huh. I wanted to see Wilford anyway. Max said he wanted to fix up their argument. We continued questioning the Dressler girl after she finished her first act at the theater restaurant. She told us that she hadn't seen Max Holland since early the day before. She was taken downtown where she gave us a full statement. Further questioning got us the information that the argument between the two men, Joseph Wilfred and Max Hollins, over the affections of Elise Dressler was far from settled at their last meeting. The girl admitted that it was a serious argument and that it ended up in a fist fight between the two men. She said Max Hollins was out of town for the night, but that he'd return early the next evening for work. He was employed as manager of a room service department at a large downtown hotel. 11.30 p.m., Ben and I drove back to the apartment house on North Hudson, and together with the building manager, we checked Max Holland's apartment. We found nothing. The manager told us Holland's car was parked in the apartment garage, so we went down and gave it a routine check. Under the front seat, we found a paper bag with a pair of gloves in it. There were bloodstains on both gloves. We dropped him off at the crime lab for examination. At 6 o'clock the following night, Ben and I went to the room service department of the downtown hotel where Hollins was employed. Sorry, sir, Mr. Hollins is late this evening. He should be here pretty soon. He notified you he'd be in late? Well, he called, yes. Probably be here in 10 or 15 minutes. I'm his assistant. Can I help you? No, it's all right. We'll wait. All right. Pardon me. I wonder if we could look at your wristwatch, please. Well, surely. It's just a few minutes past No, eight. we just want to look at the watch if we could. Oh, sure. Here. Could you take it off? I'd like to look at the back of it if it's all right. Sure, that's all right. Here. Nice looking, isn't it? Just got it yesterday. That's so. Mm, Same engraving. Agnes to Joseph. Where'd you get this watch, sir? Why, what's the matter? Where'd you get it? Max Hollins. He sold it to me. February 21st, Friday, 6.30 p.m. We called the office and notified them that we'd located the wristwatch taken from the body of the murder victim, Joseph Wilfred. A stakeout was placed on the North Hudson Street apartment house. Ben and I stayed on at the hotel waiting the return of the murder suspect, Max Hollins. We talked to his assistant and found out that Hollins had a room in the hotel where he could sleep whenever he was called on to work late at night. 6.55 p.m. We called the office back and asked for a couple of men to be sent over to check the suspect's room. A few minutes later, Hollins himself showed up for work. Apparently, he'd been doing some drinking. Ben and I questioned him at his desk to stall for time until the men from the office could get to the hotel and make a thorough check of the suspect's room. Hollins was kept busy on the phone taking room service orders from the hotel guests. In between calls, we talked to him. I left Elise in the apartment, and then I took the few pieces of laundry she had and dropped them off at Wilfred's store. It was about 6 o'clock Wednesday night. You mentioned to the Dressler girl you wanted to see Mr. Wilfred. You wanted to patch up an argument you'd had with him? Yes, I just wanted to make sure he didn't have any bad feelings about it. Really wasn't much of an argument. How long did you stay at Wilfred's store, Mr. Hollins? Do you remember that? 20 minutes, maybe a half hour. We talked, and we had a glass of wine in the back room. No, it was upstairs. We drank the wine, and everything was all right. 
I guess it was about half past six when I left the store. It was all right then. Well, did anybody come in the store while you were there? No, there was nobody. How about Mrs. Wilford? Was she in the store at all during the time you were there on Wednesday? No, he said she was gone for the day. She'd be back later on. We finished our talk, then I left. It was the last time I saw Joseph. It was a terrible thing for somebody to kill him. Excuse me again, please. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Room service, may I help you, please? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, could I suggest the palace court salad? Very nice, yes. Half of artichokes filled with fresh crab meat, a thousand island dressing garnished with slices of avocado. All right. Two orders. Some consomme? All right. French rolls, coffee, and brandy. 8.13. Yes, sir, right away. Fred, this order for 8.13. Yes, Mr. Holland. That's Mr. and Mrs. Morrow, 8.13. Make it quickly, please. Yes, sir. One of the best men I have, Fred. We keep a very high standard in our room service. Only the very best. They're all Geneva men. Yes, sir. Something else we'd like to find out. Twenty-one years ago, I came here to the hotel. There was nothing. They were serving garbage. Bad service. Very bad. I built our staff one by one. I did it. There's our staff list there. Finest waiters in the country. Henry Sanchez, Fred LaSalle, Conrad Lutz, Joe Zwick. Yes, sir. And Elmer Creighton. He waited on the president when he came to visit here from Washington. The president thought so much of our service, he wrote a letter to Elmer later on. No argument at all. I have the best spin in the country, the best food. 21 years to make it like it is. I did it all myself. I understand you and Wilford were old friends, Mr. Hollins. You knew him quite a number of years, is that right? Most of his life, yes. I knew Joseph in the old country. We came from the same town. Terrible thing that's happened. I always liked Joseph, a good friend. What about these arguments you had with him lately about the girl, Elise Dressler? They amount to anything? No, but it showed something typical of Joseph. Maybe it was the business he was in, dollars. That's all he thought about, the big dollar. He knew he had more money than I did. He thought he could do anything with it. How do you mean? About the girl, Elise. I took a visit to the old country three years ago, Strasbourg. That's where I learned my trade, from the best maitre d's in Europe. Mm -hmm. I met Elise on my way back in New York. You can check up on all my background. I worked at the Grand Hotel in Brussels. That's when it was the best. I was at the Carlton in London, and I went to Venice, the Hotel Danielli. After, I went to the Hotel Majestic in Cannes. Yes, sir. What would that have to do with Miss Dresner? Very nice girl. We liked each other. When I came back here, I arranged for her to come out from New York. Took care of everything. I thought I'd like to marry her when she came here. How about it, Hollins? You want to tell us now? Uh, sir? Did you kill Wilford? Excuse me, please. Room service. May I help you, please? Yes, Mr. Sutter. Dinner for 12 tomorrow night in your suite. Your wife and I made up the menu. Certainly, Mr. Sutter. I'll check it over for you. Let's see. We serve caviar with Pliny to start with. Then the soup, uh, consomme, madeleine. And with the soup, amontillado. Yes, sir, that's Spanish. Then crab legs, saint-denis. Sir? Saint-denis. That's crab legs rolled in breadcrumbs. Fried in butter, served in a terrapin dish with bechamel sauce. After that, the Chateaubriand with truffle sauce, souffle potatoes, small green peas francais, and with that we serve Ponte Conne 27. Dessert, we shall have peach flambe, coffee, and liqueurs afterward. Yes, sir. Henry Sanchez and Conrad Lutz, they will serve you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sutter. Good night, sir. Real gentleman, Mr. Sutter. He knows how to give a dinner party. The old school... Not so many of them left now. It's not like it used to be. 
People aren't the same anymore. Oh, yes, Fred. What is it? A message for the officers here. Sergeant? Oh, thank you. Excuse us a minute. Oh, of course. What is it? It's from Forbes. I checked his room in the hotel. I didn't find anything. Better get him downtown, huh? Yeah. Hollins, we'll have to ask you to come downtown. Oh, oh yes. Get my top coat on here. Now, there. Mm-hmm. Out this way, Sergeant. All right. You park your car in the hotel garage? No, sir, outside on 10th Street. You can go out the side door then. This way. Just starting to rain. You both have your top coat? Yeah. Yes. Well, let's go. We're parked right down this way. What did Elise say? Elise Dressler. She said you had a fight with Wilford. You went to see him the same day he was murdered. Yes. It's terrible. It's too bad. Might as well tell you, sir. We've got the evidence. Quite a bit of it. All points to you. Oh? How is that? Well, the pair of gloves you were wearing, we found them. The wristwatch you took off the body, we found that, too. Yeah. You want to tell us about it? I didn't use good sense. I didn't know what to do when I went to see him. But I... I didn't have it in my mind to kill him. God knows I tried to talk to him. I asked him, please, to stay away from the lease. I asked him as a friend. Yes, sir. All he said to me was, Max, I give her presents and she likes me. I have the money to give her what she wants, Max. You haven't got the money. That's what he said to me. You had a fight with him then? No, there wasn't any fight. I'm not sorry. I killed him, but I'm not sorry. You want to give us a statement about it downtown? I suppose. I'm not ashamed of it. All right, let's go down this way. Any man would have done the same. How could you hear such talk and not kill him? How about the wristwatch you took off of him, the money from the drawer? I wanted to hurt him more, even after he was dead, after I beat him and beat him. I knew it would be the worst way to hurt Joseph, to take his money. Here we are. In the back, huh? Yeah. Sergeant. Yeah. I've told you now. I killed him. Don't you think I had a right to kill him? I wouldn't know. But he was like that. The first time you met Joseph, you would know he was bad. It was better for everybody for him to die. First time you met him, you would know that. I'm sorry, I wouldn't know, mister. What? The only time I met him, he was dead. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 4th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 89, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. Max Hollins was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the State Penitentiary, San Quentin, California. You have just heard Dragnet a series of authentic cases from official files. Stay tuned for Counterspy, next on NBC. So there you have Dragnet from September the 13th, 1951, the big waiter. And that guy actually ended up in the gas chamber at San Quentin. It's a done deal. 
That was a lot more common back then. And I don't know that there's been an execution in California for many, many years. Although I guess there's still people on death row. And it's still San Quentin. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? We'll have more Dragnet in the weeks ahead. Something familiar. Something familiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> okay, on our comedy corner this week, we're going back to 1948 for an episode of the Jack Benny Show. And in this one, the name of this episode is Charlie's Aunt. Are you familiar with the fact that um, Jack Benny actually played in a movie production of that play, Charlie's Aunt, where he disguised himself as a woman? It was considered one of Jack Benny's very best acting roles. And they said it was just hilariously funny. I've tried to find a copy of it, and they're just not available. You can't even get it on Amazon. At any rate, in this, Jack reprises the costume. This was the week after Jack had Ronald Coleman's Oscar stolen from him. And that's a very famous episode. I was almost going to play that first, but I've played it before a couple of times in the past. But if you haven't heard it, you might go on to uh, uh, boomerboulevard.com and look it up under the Jack Benny Show. I think it's entitled Your Money or Your Life, or it might be Ronald Coleman's Oscar is Stolen. And this was the week after. So Ronald Coleman makes a very brief appearance in here, but it's a funny one. And this the, the bit with the opera, this was an actual opera singer from the Met. I can't think of her name. But she sang along with the uh, with the quartet. And it, I I just really thought it was just funny and brilliant. So here we go from... April the 25th, 1948, here's the Jack Benny Show, and this one is entitled Charlie's Aunt. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jack Benny has just returned from his stay in Palm Springs. So let's go out to Jack's house in Beverly Hills. It's morning, and we find Rochester in the kitchen. I'm overlooking a sink full of dishes that I overlooked all week. There's spoons and there's saucers and dirt on the floor. Oh, good morning. Good morning, Rochester. Oh, oh, good morning, boss. Did you you have a nice night? Oh, pretty good, Rochester. But you know I had a difficult time falling asleep. I counted 3,000 sheep. 3,020 to be exact. Was it that many? Yeah, and boss, tonight when you go to bed, why don't you take a little pill? 
No, Rochester, I prefer to count sheep. I know, but I feel so silly putting on that white coat and jumping back and forth over your bed <laughs> Rochester, if I can toss and turn, you can jump a little. Doesn't hurt. Now, pour me some coffee. Okay. Just a minute, boss. Why'd you pull down the shade? In case Mr. Coleman looks out of his window, I don't want him to see you. Oh, yes, yes. He's still mad about my losing his Oscar, isn't he? Mad? Yesterday he came over and got one of our lawnmowers. Well, that's all right. I know, but he mowed half his lawn before he put the flag down on the meter. <laughs> See, Rochester, if Mr. Coleman finds out I'm back from Palm Springs, no telling what he'll do. But I have to go to the studio. How am I going to get out of the house without him seeing me? Well, let me see. I know. What? Get down on all fours, I'll throw the bearskin rug over you and lead you out of the house on a leash. No, no, that wouldn't work. Now, suppose he comes over to pet me. I'll leave the muzzle off so you can bite him. <laughs> You know, I'd probably break my tooth on his garter, silly. <laughs> but I gotta get out of the house without Mr. Coleman seeing me. Say, boss, I know what you can do. What? You've still got your old Charlie's Ant costume. Why don't you put that on? Say, that's a wonderful idea. If I'm dressed like a woman, he won't recognize me. That's a you take it, Rochester. I'll go in and put on my Charlie's Ant costume. Yes, sir. Mr. Benny's residence, star of stage, screen, radio, and will accept the nomination for any party that'll let him rent out rooms in the White House. <laughs> hello, Rochester. This is Miss Livingston. Oh, oh, hello, Miss Livingston. How did you enjoy your two-week stay in Palm Springs? Oh, wonderful, Rochester. I was on the golf course with Mr. Benny every day. I know, and Mr. Benny said you owed him $4.35. That's right. I didn't know he could beat you. He didn't beat me. He caddied for me. <laughs> oh. By the way, Rochester, how does Mr. Benny feel now? Much better, but when he got home from Palm Springs, he was green. What made him so sick? Well, he stopped at an orange juice stand that said all you can drink for 10 cents, and we had to roll him back in the car. <laughs> That's what it was. He woke me up when he came sloshing into the house. Well, Rochester, please tell Mr. Benny that I'll pick him up in a few minutes on my way down to the studio. That'll be fine, Miss Livingston, but would you mind waiting for him down on the corner? On the corner? Why? Well, Mr. Benny will explain it to you when he sees you. All right, Rochester. Goodbye. Goodbye. Are you decent, boss? <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> Rochester, how do I look in my Charlie's Ant costume? Well, let me see. You've got the wig on straight, and your curls tumble down over your forehead in a tantalizing manner. Thank you. Thank you, Rochester. Your mascara is just heavy enough to accentuate the blue in your eyes. Good, good. Uh, your lips have the red glow of a summer sun as it slowly sinks into the peaceful Pacific. <laughs> well... And your... Uh-oh. What's the matter? You better pull up your shoulder straps. Your hair on your chest is showing. <laughs> oh, nobody will notice that when I wear my shawl. Oh, my goodness, look what time it is. I better get started for the studio. Uh, I told Miss Livingston to pick you up on the corner. Well, that's a good idea. Gee, I hope nobody recognizes me. Rochester, does this dress really make me look like a woman? 
Boss, if this was Mother's Day, you'd be lousy with flowers. Good, good. So long, Rochester. Goodbye. Hmm. A little chilly. I'm glad I wore this shawl. <laughs> a pretty girl is like a melody. Da 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 da. See, if I pass Georgie Jessel, I'm dead. <laughs> But it'll be interesting. <laughs> oh. Well, as soon as I get in Mary's car, I'll take off this dress and... Uh-oh. Oh, my goodness. Here comes Ronald Coleman walking this way. I just put down my head and crossed the street. Gee, that was close. You better be careful, lady. Huh? I help you across the street? Uh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. But I can manage by myself. Well, well, let, let me take your arm. Well, all right. <laughs> Am I walking too fast for you, Mother? No, no. <laughs> no, no. Well, here we are across the street. Yes, now. Now, watch the curb. Ups a daisy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Coleman. Oh, you you recognize me? Yes, yes. Now I have to run uh, away. Would you, would you like my autograph? Oh, not now. I'm in a hurry. I oh, have to... only take a minute. I'm sorry, but I don't have a pencil or a paper. I really haven't. Huh? Oh, I don't need pencil and paper. I have them written out on little cards. <laughs> uh, you know, the... Um... The demand has been quite heavy lately. Oh, oh, then I'll take one. No, take two. Give one to your husband. <laughs> Thank you. He's dead. He'll be thrilled. He'll be thrilled. Uh, uh, by the way, madam, am I the first movie star you ever met? Well, no, no. I once met Charles Farrell, star of Seventh Heaven. <laughs> Charlie Farrell? No, no. Must have been before my time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, Mr. Coleman. You're my favorite Oscar. I mean, actor. You're my favorite actor. What was that? Goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye. Gosh, that was a narrow escape. I don't know how much longer I could have held out. There's a fly under my wig. I'll get him. I'll comb them out later. <laughs> now, let me see. Rochester said that Mary would pick me... Oh, here's Mary's car over there. I beg your pardon, madam, but I'm... Mary, it's me. It's me. Oh, for heaven's sake, Jack. What are you doing in that outfit? I had to put it on so I could sneak out of the house without Ronald Coleman recognizing me. It's a good thing I did, too, because I bumped into him. Well, I just saw Ronnie, too. Oh, my goodness. If he saw you, he'll be sure to know that I'm around. Oh, he didn't see me, Jack. He just walked by the car and threw his autograph in the back seat. (laughs) The back seat? Oh, yeah, here it is. Well, what do you know? This one has glue on it so you can stick it on your windshield. (laughs) 
Come on, Mary, let's go. Jack, you're not going to the studio dressed as Charlie's aunt, are you? No, no, Mary, I have my suit on underneath. I'll slip the dress off while you're driving. No, no, Jack, don't take it off. I want to remember you just the way you are. What? The way your curls tumble down over your forehead in a tantalizing manner. Say, Rochester said the same thing. And your mascara is just heavy enough to accentuate the blue of your eyes. That's funny. He said that, too. And your lips have the red glow of a summer sun slowly sinking into the La Brea tar pit. <laughs> Mary. I bet he didn't think of that one. No, no, he didn't. Now, come on, let's hurry to the studio. I can't get this... I gotta get this dress off before we get there. I'm going into my dressing room. Call me when you start the rehearsal, will you? Okay, I'll see you later. Oh, there's Mel Blank. Hello, Mel. Hello, Jack. Are you going to use me on your show today? No, no, Mel. I spent too much money in Palm Springs. Maybe next week, huh? So long, Mel. So long. That's all, folks. He's a clever guy. It's a shame he won't work cheaper. <laughs> oh, well, da-dee-da-dum, da-dee. Hiya, Jackson. Long time no see. Oh, hello, Phil. Hi. Hey, Phil. Hey, Jackson. What? Let me look at you. You know you're staying in Palm Springs did you a lot of good? You're two inches taller. What? You're oh, taller. Oh, darn it. I forgot to take off these high-heeled shoes. <laughs> but, Phil, no kidding. I sure missed you on our last two shows. I know. What? You need me, Jackson. You need me. What do you mean? I got big laughs, didn't I? Yeah, you got laughs, but there was something missing. You know, your program without me is like a Persian rug. It looks good, but it just lays there. <laughs> Phil. Look, Jackson, you tried it without me for two weeks. Now, have you learned your lesson? What? If you can't take the talent with you, stay where the talent is. <laughs> Phil, Phil, shrinking violet. Look, how can you possibly be so egotistical? I ain't egotistical, Jackson. I just say if you got an effervescent personality, let it fizz. Let it fizz. Well, if that doesn't stop the air conditioning, nothing will. Now, Phil, this week we got a very important show, so let's get started with the rehearsal. Okay, I'll be waiting a minute, Jackson. I want to go in and run over Dennis's song with him. Okay, I'll come along with you. Come on. All right, all right, all right, man. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Let's run through Dennis's number once more. All right, come on. There was a boy, a very strange, enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far Over land and sea A little shy And sad of heart But very wise was he 
one day A magic day he passed my way And while we spoke of many things Fools and kings This he said to me The greatest thing You'll ever learn Is just Good, Dennis. That song sounded swell. Thanks, Mr. Benny, but I think the orchestra should have played it with just a little more rhythm. I guess you're right, Dennis. Oh, Phil. I'll take care of it. Hey, fellas, when we do the number on the show, play it a little bit more pizza, uh, pistachio. <laughs> That's Mexicano. <laughs> pistachio. When we give you the wrong word, you can't pronounce it. <laughs> Say, Dennis. <laughs> Dennis. Say, Dennis, what time, uh, Dennis, what? <laughs> Say, Dennis, what time did you get home from Palm Springs Sunday night? Hmm? Oh, I didn't get home Sunday. I got home late Wednesday and almost missed my own show. But you left Palm Springs Sunday night. What took you so long? Did your car break down? No, but I ran into a lot of traffic in Salt Lake City. <laughs> Salt Lake City? Dennis, why did you go from Palm Springs to Los Angeles by the way of Salt Lake City? I wanted to avoid the traffic light in Banning. <laughs> well, that's logical. But that wasn't the only reason. Well, I also wanted to break in my new car. My mother gave it to me for my birthday. Hey, congratulations, kid. When was your birthday? Last week. And I had a swell party, too. Refreshments and dancing and games like post office. <laughs> well, well. Who was there? Just me. <laughs> Yes, you... Dennis, how could you dance and play games all by yourself? It's done with mirrors. <laughs> oh, fine. Me having two shows, I can understand, but this kid's a mystery. <laughs> Dennis, why don't... Hey, Jack, I... Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello. Well, hiya, Livy. You ravishing, gorgeous one, you. <laughs> hello, Phil. Say, Jack, uh, the drugstore just sent back the pictures we took in Palm Springs. Oh, good, good. Let's take a look at them. Here's a picture of me taken near the pool in my bathing suit. Hey, let me see that, Livy. Here you are. Well, scudder who, scudder, hey. <laughs> oh, say, that's really a gorgeous bathing suit. Oh, it's nothing. That he can see, believe me. <laughs> And Phil, here's 
on a jack in his bathing trunks. Let me have a figure of that. Oh, no. No. Oh, no, no. What are you laughing at? You look like a spider with four legs, Miss. <laughs> All right, Phil, you can stop fizzing. Say, right. Mary, can I see that picture of Mr. Benny? Here you are, Dennis. Gee, I don't know what Phil was laughing at. Thanks, kid. For a spider, you look pretty good. <laughs> Well, now, I don't know whether you fellas are kidding me or not. Say, Jack, we better start rehearsing. We go on the air pretty soon. Yeah, let's get going, Jackson. The music's all ready. Good. And now we... Hey, wait a minute. Where's Don? Oh, Don! Well, here I am, Jack. Well, Don, it's getting kind of late, and we have to... Don. Don, did you... Did you pass an orange juice, stand? No, I always look like this. <laughs> oh. oh, I see. Well, look, Don, we've got practically everything ready but the quartet. Did you rehearse them? Oh, yes, Jack. I've got a great surprise for you. A surprise? Yes. For weeks now, your quartet's been rehearsing an operatic number, but they needed a soprano for the lead. Uh-huh. So I took the liberty of asking Miss Dorothy Kirsten to come over and join them. Well, I think it was very... Dorothy Kirsten? You don't mean Dorothy Kirsten of the Metropolitan Opera? Yes, Mr. Benny, and here I am. Miss Kirsten, this is indeed an honor and a great privilege having an operatic star like you on my program. Thank you, Mr. Benny. Coming from a violinist of your reputation, I consider that quite a compliment. Well, speaking of my (laughs) violin playing, I really shouldn't take too much credit for a talent that comes naturally. (laughs) Some talent. Your father used to tie a flat iron on the end of your bow so you could practice the violin and press pants at the same time. <laughs> Mary, please. Oh, Miss, uh, Miss Kirsten, this is Mary Livingston. How do you do, Miss Livingston? How do you do? And this is Dennis Day. Hello, Dennis. Glad to know you, Miss Kirsten. Dennis, you must be very proud to be associated with a man of Mr. Benny's stature and importance. In a bathing suit, he looks like a spider. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Day. <laughs> He's such a kid you know? Oh, Miss Kirsten, I wanted to tell you That I saw you in Madame Butterfly Wednesday afternoon And I thought your performance was simply magnificent Well, thanks, thanks awfully It's awfully nice and kind of you, Mr. Wilson But uh, who could help singing Puccini? It's so expressive And particularly in the last act Starting with the Allegro Vivacissimo well, now, that's being very modest, Miss Kirsten, but not every singer has the necessary bel canto and flexibility or range to cope with the high testatura of the first act. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Wilson. And don't you think that in the Ario Un Bel Di Vedremo that the strings played the con molto passione exceptionally fine and with great sostenendo? Well, I thought... Oh, shut up! <laughs> Mary, that's not cricket. <laughs> now, I was only trying to be sociable, that's all. Gee, Miss Kirsten, I wish my mother was here. She'd enjoy meeting you. She's a singer, too. Oh, is your mother a soprano or a contralto? She's a baritone. <laughs> Dennis, please. 
Miss Kirsten, as I understand it, you're going to sing a number with my quartet. Is that right? Yes. We've rehearsed all week, didn't we, boys? Well, this is really a big event on my show, Miss Kirsten. I'm certainly thrilled having you, but, uh, but pardon me, Don. Don, step over here a minute, will you? Don, how much is Miss Kirsten, uh, I mean, how much is she going to charge me? Well, lean over, Jack. I'll whisper it to you. Whoops. <laughs> she, she gets more than Mel Blanc. <laughs> well. Mr. Benny, I hope you're not concerned about the financial arrangement. Oh, no, no. That is, I'm not worried for myself. I'm worried about the rest of my cast. They'll have to take a cut, you know. <laughs> Miss Kirsten, uh, what number have you and the boys prepared? The quartet from Rigoletto. Oh, well, that should be wonderful on the show. May we hear it now? Certainly. Don, announce it now, just the way we're going to do it on the show, will you? Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have the privilege of bringing you the quartet from Rigoletto with the Sportsman Quartet, and starring Miss Dorothy Kirsten of the Metropolitan Opera.
I must call you Dorothy now. That was, really, that was simply superb. Thank you, Jack. You know, Miss Kirsten, my mother wanted me to become an opera singer. Well, it's a very exciting profession, indeed. But it requires intensive voice training. I studied ten years. In Milan? No, do what did he? <laughs> it must be a time. Dorothy, when you do this same number on the show, I'd like to ask you a favor. When you finish the number, don't leave the stage. We may want an encore. Very well, Jack. And now there's something I'd like to ask you. What is it? Where did you get those darling open-toed shoes? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I meant to take them off. It's a long story, but here's what happened. Everybody on stage. Everybody on stage. The program goes on in two minutes. Come on, Dorothy. Come on, kids. Let's give them a great show. Come on. Be sure to listen to the Phil Harris Alice Faye show on Sundays and a day in the life of Dennis Day on Wednesdays. I want to thank Miss Dorothy Kirsten of the Metropolitan Opera for helping us out tonight. I also want to thank Ronald Coleman for helping me across the street. <laughs> and now, if you'll excuse me, folks, my feet are killing me. Good night. <laughs> This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Wasn't that good? That was a funny one, I thought. Uh, It's the first time I've ever played that episode. It was uh, originally broadcast on April 25th, 1948. That was the Jack Benny show, Charlie's Aunt. And Ronald Coleman's appearance in there, the reason Jack was hiding from him, is the week before, I think it was the week before, maybe two weeks before, he had lost Ronald Coleman's Oscar that he had just won for Best Actor. And I I guess I'll have to pull that out and play it. But you can go on to boomerboulevard.com and look up the Jack Benny Show. Look up on the index. That's the fastest way to do it. At the top, it'll say index. By the way, that is all up to date now. For a while, um, some of the links weren't working to the shows, and that was my fault. It was a quick fix. I fixed it all last night. Or They're all working now. So you can go in there, and I think there's 120 shows or something like that. When you listen to the podcast, you'll only have available to you something like the last 50 shows. But we've got quite a bit more on BoomerBoulevard.com. But it's one of the classic, classic episodes. So I, I should probably play it next time. All right. All of us have heard of Will Rogers. Now, probably not many of us anymore actually remember him from when he was alive because he died in 1935. But I do remember Will Rogers Jr., who looked and sounded an awful lot like his dad. Now, he never reached the stardom that his dad did. But he did do a number of movies where he portrayed his father, for instance, in the biography, The Will Rogers Story, and in one or two other films, too, I believe. But he had that same kind of homespun uh, good old boy kind of mannerism. And you'll find this in this show tonight because this is a radio show that starred Will Rogers Jr. And <laughs> he played himself in a fictitious role. He played Will Rogers Jr., who in the show is the editor of a small town newspaper. And so the show revolves around the stories that take place in this small town. Now, this was produced and directed by Norm MacDonald, the same one that did Gunsmoke, of course, and did uh, Philip Marlowe and a number of other great shows. 
I guess I'm just attracted to the way that he uh, he produced and directed. It also features Parley Bear as the town doctor, who, of course, plays Chester on Gunsmoke. And it also uh, features Georgia Ellis as uh, Will Rogers' assistant. And, of course, she's the one that played Kitty on Gunsmoke. This was done about the same time Gunsmoke started. This episode was, I believe, the second episode of this show. And this originally was broadcast on July the 29th, 1953. I don't think it needs any more setup. I think that should do it. So relax and enjoy this. And if you like it as much as I do, then send me an email and we'll play more episodes going ahead in the future. This is Will Rogers Jr. in Rogers of the Gazette. And the name of this episode is Surprise Engagement. Ladies and gentlemen, the editor of the Illyria Weekly Gazette, Mr. Will Rogers Jr. Thank you. You know, a fellow once said that wise men can profit more from fools than fools can from wise men. You see, the reason is that wise men avoid the faults of fools, but fools don't bother to imitate the good examples of wise men. Rogers of the Gazette. Offering you again tonight, transcribed, another heartwarming story of a country newspaper and its friendly editor. And starring Will Rogers, Jr. During the long summer days, the town of Illyria seems to half sleep in the locust-filled heat. Oh, perhaps the soda fountain at the drugstore is a little busier than usual, and of course Jetter's Pond is filled with laughing, splashing youngsters, but for the most of the town, it's summer and a lazy time. But later, when shadows begin to stretch out across the wide streets, Illyria stirs in the soft coolness of twilight. Pitchers of lemonade appear on wide verandas and groups of shirt-sleeved gossipers gather at street corners. Illyria is coming to life. Tonight, there's a special reason. It's a dance at the country club, and most of the town will be there. As editor of the Gazette, Will Rogers is taking Maggie Button, his assistant. But right at this minute, Will's dressing, and he has a particularly annoying problem. Where in the heck did I put that thing? Jill? Jill? I heard it, Daddy. That must be Maggie. Will you let her in? All right, Daddy. Thanks, honey. Well, let's see. It's got to be here somewhere. Hello, Miss Button. Hello, Jill, honey. Come on in. Daddy will be ready in a minute, I think. He's been having awful trouble. Oh. Hi, Maggie. Hi. Gosh, you smell good, Miss Button. Well, thank you, Jill. That's a very nice compliment. Sit down, Maggie. Don't keep your date waiting well. We don't want to be late. Doing my best, Maggie. It's been kind of nip and tuck all the way. See what I mean? Yeah, I think so. I tell you, Maggie, it's again natural law to ask any man to climb into one of these things. All I need is a trap door, and then I can be strangled for sure tonight. You'd better do something, Miss Button. It's his tie. Well, there's nothing so hard about a bow tie. Nothing except the tying part. Oh, here, let me try. Hold your head back. Miss Button? Mm. Yes, honey? 
I thought he was supposed to come by and pick you up. Well, honey, I might have sat home all evening waiting for him, so I didn't take any chances and I came by here instead. Uh, there now. Put on your coat. Hey, well, it's all tied. Sure. Thanks, Maggie. Thanks a lot. Come on now. Oh, in the rush of getting my tie tied, I didn't have a chance to stand off and look at you. Well, there's always time for that. You like it? You'll be the prettiest girl there, Maggie. Am I right, honey? Oh, Daddy, sometimes I... What, baby? Why, she's the prettiest girl anywhere. Didn't you know that? Will, leave your collar alone. Maggie, my poor old neck's had about all it can take. It isn't often we have a formal get-together in Illyria. You men can wear dinner jackets one night a year. One night's about all our health will stand. If the collars don't get us, the smell of mothballs will. (laughs) Oh, Will, you're incorrigible. (laughs) I'm still wondering why Polly Pellerton rented the whole country club anyhow. Maybe all this has something to do with jocks getting back from New York and school and all, huh? I kind of think it has, Maggie. I bet she just had this party to show him off a little bit. It's one of the perils of being born of parents. Now, if children were just sort of hatched out in the sun by themselves, they'd never have to put up with being showed off <laughs> like this. Poor old Judge Walters over there looks about as bad as I feel. Now, Will, don't start complaining again. I've been trying to keep your mind off of it. Get a man's mind off of this boiled shirt is like trying to tell a camel he hasn't got a hump. <laughs> oh, hello, Jock. Jock. Hello, Will, Maggie. Gosh, it's good to see you two again. How are things at the paper? They're fine, Jock. Oh, good. Oh, Jock, there you are. You both know Melissa Walters. Well, hello, Melissa. When'd you get back from the coast? Day before yesterday. How are you, Will? Fine, Melissa. How was Stanford? Oh, wonderful. I sort of hated to leave it, but. Oh, it's all behind me now. Maggie, we got to get a notice in the paper. Melissa's back. My, that's a pretty dress. Sit down, Melissa. Oh, I'd love to, but I'm on the punch bowl. Uh, can I get you two, sir? Oh, yes. We'd love it. All right. Excuse me, please. She sure is a pretty girl, Jock. Uh-huh. I said Melissa's grown up to be a mighty pretty girl. Oh, yes, she has, hasn't she? Oh, There's your mother now, getting up on the bandstand, Jock. Yeah, I wonder what's up. You should be awfully proud of her, Jock. She's just lovely. I am, of course. I interrupt you for just a few moments. I have an announcement to make. I know everyone's rather curious as to why we're having this party tonight. Now, now, it's really nothing new under the sun at all. As a matter of fact, it's just a very simple and natural occurrence that happens every day. But it means a great deal to me and to, to Melissa's father, Judge Walters. I asked you all to come here tonight so I could tell you that my son, Jock, is going to marry Melissa Walters. Oh, well. Well, now, Jock, that is news. Jock, Jock, what is all this, anyhow? Uh, let me be the first to congratulate you both. Jock, what'll we do? Let's get out of here. Come on. Will? Well, y- you know, they seem more surprised than anybody. Yeah, they oh, sure did. Maggie. 
Oh, hello, Polly. Uh, didn't I see the children standing here with you a moment ago? Everyone wants to congratulate them and wish them luck. Now, where are they? Uh, well, uh, they sort of left, Mrs. Pellerton. Oh, of course. They've been away from each other so long, and they just scampered off to be alone together. Uh, listen, everyone, we'll just have to save our wishes until they come back. Now, have fun. Have fun. Well? Huh? Why didn't you tell her they scampered off in opposite directions? Why didn't you? We're both cowards, huh? Well, I wouldn't go that far, Maggie, but I'd just hate to do anything that'd spoil Polly's nice evening. Doc? Doc? Doc, you wake? What's that? Doc, it's your move. Oh. Yeah. Well, now, let, let me see. Uh, where can I move to? Or most any place, Doc. I know that, but where? I'm trying to win the game, too. Oh, so am I. Oh, here's something you didn't notice. <laughs> there. What do you think of that? Pretty good, Doc. You weren't as sleepy as I thought you were. Uh, well, it's a new tactic I figured out last night. By lulling myself into a semi-nap, I lulled you into a false sense of security. Well, uh, almost, Doc, but not quite. Huh? Uh, oh. Never <laughs> underestimate a leopard, a lion, or a checker player, Doc. And of those three animals, the last named is the most vicious when aroused. Yeah, I'm scuttled. You win again. <laughs> I knew you weren't asleep, Doc. You did? How? Any man who's really asleep wouldn't take a swat at a little old fly walking across the bridge of his nose. <laughs> well, it wasn't a fly, anyhow. It was you with that feather duster, wasn't it? <laughs> well, you got to stick a fork in the potatoes to see if they're done or not. <laughs> How about a bottle of cherry pop? Uh, oh, oh, thanks, Will. Uh, you got the paper to bed yet? All but the society page. Maggie's making a big thing out of this edition on account of Polly Pellerton's party last night. She picked up these today. Mm. Pictures of Melissa and Jock, huh? Yeah. And that banner there, that's going on the top of the page. Illyrians to wed. Hmm. So Jock's going to marry Melissa Walters. That's right. Well, Judge Walters and Polly Pellerton been hoping for this for a long time. Jock and Melissa went together when they were in high school here. Then both of them went away to college... Jock to New York and Melissa to California. Now, after four years away from each other, they come back to get each other. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a funny thing, Will. I know Polly Pellerton pretty well. I've been calling on her twice a week for ten years now about that heart of hers, you know. Yeah. Why, she even asked me if she was up to having this party. But do you think she let out one peep about Jock and Melissa? Not a word. What's so funny about that, Doc? Well, I never knew a woman yet who could keep a secret. Yeah. Oh, look at that. I gotta be getting it. it's three thirty. Why don't you drop around later tonight and try and get even? Well now I might. Uh how much do I owe you now? Well, let's see here now. Counting today's game, that makes uh three million two hundred and eighty five thousand dollars. Uh, that's hardly enough to worry about. It. Oh I'm awfully sorry. Well, no, it, it's my fault. I wasn't looking where I was going again. Happens all the time. Are you Mr. Rogers? Uh, no, uh, that's him over there. Oh, thank you. Uh, goodbye, miss. So long, Will. So long, Doc. Mr. Rogers, I'd like to put an ad in your personal column. Well, sure. Uh, now, uh, what would you like to say? Just say, I'll be waiting for your call. And sign it, Jenny. 
waiting for your call. Jenny, is that all? Yes. Uh, Jenny what? Just Jenny. All right. You better give me a phone number, though, so that whoever it is will know where to call you. Oh, yes. I'm staying at Plummer's Hotel. I just got in from New York. Plummer's Hotel. Then I'll just put their number in the ad. Oh, that'll be fine, Mr. Rogers. How much do I owe you? Uh, Well, I'm pretty well acquainted around Elyria, miss. Uh, Maybe I can save you some money if you want to tell me who it is you're trying to get in touch with. (laughs) Thank you, just the same. How much? Well, uh, let's see now. That'll be a dollar. Here you are. Thank you for the business. Will, can I use your phone? Sure, Doc. What's the matter? Fan built again, busted all the heck. Looks like a used fire. Well, I'll just... Oh. Is there anything wrong, miss? I just noticed these pictures. She's a very pretty girl, isn't she? Melissa? Yes, she sure is. Thank you very much. Mr. Rogers, I, I, I think I'm going to faint. Stop. Yeah, I heard her, boy. What do we do? Well, the best thing we can do is put her over here on the couch and then see what made her faint. Easy now. Yeah. Uh, get her purse there on the floor, Will. It spilled all over. I'll handle this. Sure, Doc. Does she live here in town, Will? Uh, who is she? Oh, well, she doesn't live around here, Doc, but... Huh. I think I know who she is. Who? According to this driver's license, her name's Pellerton. What? Jenny Ambers Pellerton. Doc, I think this girl is Chuck Pellerton's wife. Maggie's here now, Doc. Anything we can do? No, no, I don't think so, Will. How is she, Doc? She's coming around now all right, Maggie. Now, 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 now. It's all right, miss. You're all right. Just take it easy. Yes. Did I faint? (laughs) Afraid you did. This is the doctor. Oh. And this is my assistant, Miss Button. Hello there. It was pretty silly of me, I guess. Well, now that remains to be seen. How'd you like to ride over to the hospital with me so I can check you over? Oh, I'm all right now. Honestly, I feel fine. Besides, I have to catch a train tonight. I'm going back to New York. You haven't even given Elyria a chance, and you're already planning to go back? Don't you think you ought to stay around and look things over? They aren't always what they seem. I'm going back as soon as I can. I'm sorry I ever came here. Miss, I know you've had one long train ride today, and without even checking you over, I'd say thumbs down on you packing your bags and taking another long trip without at least one night's sleep. Perhaps you'd better go to the dock here and let him look you over, huh? He doesn't have to look me over, do you? Well, now, I'm not certain. He knows I'm going to have a baby. Jenny, I know Jock Pellerton's your husband. Let me call him and tell him you're here. I don't want to see him. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. Leave me alone. All of you, just leave me alone. (laughs) How'd it go? Doc always surprises me when he goes into action. He can be pretty firm. Well, how'd she take it? What happened? Doc and I got her in the car, and the next thing you know, we were parked in front of the hospital. Uh Uh-huh. Did she say anything more? (laughs) No. Doc did all the talking. 
He talked about people trying to think when nothing's on their minds that had let them think and how big mistakes are made that way. And before she could argue with him, he had her upstairs and in the room. Did she go to sleep? After Doc gave her a sedative. I don't know what she's going to wake up to tomorrow morning, but I certainly know what I'm going to say to Jock Pellerton when I see him again. Now, Maggie, Jock's always been a pretty decent sort. No sense jumping at conclusions yet. Conclusions? With one wife in New York who's about to have a baby and him announcing he's going to marry another girl here? Oh, remember, he didn't announce it. His mother did. Well, he could have straightened it out right at the party and told them he was married already. Maybe he had a good reason for not saying anything. Oh, what about Melissa? What do you expect her or Jeremy or anybody else to think of him? Now, Maggie, even Abe Lincoln wasn't well thought of by half the country. Mm. Well, I suppose so. Hi, Daddy. Hello, Miss Button. Jill, honey. Well, come on in. But it's after 9 o'clock. What are you doing down here? You should be home in bed. Too much to think about. Besides, Mr. and Mrs. Bimbo took everybody to the band concert tonight. I went with them. When we came by here, they dropped me off on account the light was still on. Aren't you glad to see me? Oh, honey, I'm always glad to see you. Come on, climb up here on the desk. All right. What have you been thinking about, Jill? My future. Really? I want to be a champion someday. Champion, huh? Well, now there are all kinds of champions. What kind of a champion do you want to be? Oh, any kind's all right. Just so as I win. Just so you win, huh? I see. Well, I'm going to run along now. Good night, honey. Good night, Miss Button. Good night, Maggie. See you tomorrow. Night. Daddy, tell me a story about a champion. <laughs> All right, Jill. You remember old Daniel Webster? Yes. Well, now, he was a champion arguer. He was? Yeah, he was one of the best arguers we probably ever had in this country. Well, one day he got to arguing with his friends. And old Dan, he just stood up and finally said, I think you fellas are all wrong about this. And then what happened, Daddy? Well, they thought old Dan was wrong, too. Did they have a fight about it? Nope. <laughs> they compromised. C- huh? Comprom- compromised, honey. It uh, kind of means that instead of starting a fight, why, they all went home and had a good night's sleep. Then the next morning, when they'd kind of all cooled off, why, they sat down together and listened to what the other fellas had to say... And do you know what? What? Once they'd talked it over good and proper, why, they found out that all of them were partly right and partly wrong. Even Dan Webster was partly wrong? Even Dan Webster. Is that bad, Daddy? (laughs) No, honey. That's just human. Golly, if he was a champion, I thought he knew everything. So did everyone else, except old Dan. That's why he was so smart. But then nobody won. Well, that's the point, honey. Isn't that? It's that nobody lost. And all of them found out something about the other fellows that they hadn't known before. And they were all champions? <laughs> That's right, honey. They were all champions. Will Rogers. Well, Polly, good morning. Will, what do you mean by this? I got up at 7 o'clock this morning just so I could buy up a dozen copies of your silly old newspaper and cut out the story about Jock and Melissa to send away to my friends. Now, Polly. But there's no story here at all, not one single word. Polly, if you'll just sit down quiet for a minute, why, maybe we can talk this thing Well, all the time I've lived here and all the business I've done with you, I've never asked you for one thing. Not one thing in all that time until I had the party the other night. Then I ask you to write a real nice story about Jock and Melissa. Please, It's Polly, what the judge we... and I had hoped and prayed for ever since they were children. 
It's not asking a lot for you to give the story a little space and us a lot of happiness. It's just one of the nice little things a mother likes to see, whether anyone else does or not. Was it asking too much, Will? No, Polly, of course not. I wanted to print the story about Jock and Melissa. Then why didn't you? Polly, you'll have to ask Jock about that. I'm asking you, Will. It's just not for me to say, Polly. Will, I never want to see you or your newspaper again. Wait, Polly. Polly, wait a minute. I... Oh, shoot. Um... Elyria Weekly Gazette. Will, this is Jock Pellerton. Uh, I want to thank you for not uh, printing that story in the paper. I'm glad you were happy about it, Jock. Your mother sees it the other way. Has she talked to you? Just left. With tears in her eyes. Well, there's something I'd like to talk to you about. I'll be waiting for you, Jock. Hello, Will. Jock, Melissa. Hello, Will. Sit down. Thanks. Will, Jock and I can't possibly get married. Go on. He's already married to a girl in New York, has been for six months. And I'm engaged to a boy in San Francisco. And neither one of you told your folks? No, we told each other, but not them. Well, why not? Have the judge or Polly been so hard to tell things to before? It's Mom's heart, Will. If I'd have had her alone and quiet, I could have told her. But after that party, well... Don't you see? Jock came home to tell Polly, and I came home to tell Dad. And before either of us had a chance to say anything, they announced our engagement. Well, that sort of complicated things, all right. It was a wonderful idea they had, but things are all out of control. Well, now I never saw a river rise up yet that didn't have to come back down, Jock. I can't tell Mother she's so upset now. It'd be dangerous. Uh, Jock, um, there's something else. Jenny's here in Elyria. My wife? Yeah. Where? When did she get here? Now, now, hold on. She's a little scared about everything. First, she's scared about your mother, Jock, because she wouldn't even take a chance of phoning you at home. What? And then she's scared about you and Melissa. Where is she, Will? She stayed at the hospital last night. Oh, no, 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 no. She's all right. Nothing wrong. But you're going to have to do some explaining to her. I can do that all right. I'll go with you, Jock. Uh, Will, if Mother comes by again... (laughs) You better get over to the hospital and see your wife. Worry about Polly later. I guess a man can only worry about one woman at a time. Thanks, Will. Oh. Oh, congratulations to both of you. And that's about the whole story, Doc. What do you think? I'm trying to figure out if anybody did anything right or wrong. Jock's motives were good. Oh, yeah. Waiting to get home so he could tell his mother in person. But his methods weren't very good. Now, if Polly hadn't had the party... And if Jock hadn't gone with Melissa, and if Polly and the judge hadn't jumped the gun... Oh, Will, the world's full of ifs. And I've got just one more. If the day ever comes when parents can look on their children as people with private lives, a lot of us doctors will be able to retire early. As much as I think of Polly, I'll have to say she's not been an angel in this. How's that again, Doc? Well, demanding so much of the boy that news of him marrying somebody beside Melissa might be a dangerous thing for her to find out. What will Polly do when she does find out? It's hard to say. She thinks quite a bit of her boy. I mean her heart. I mean her heart, too, Will. 
Uh, well, Jenny seemed like an awful nice girl, doesn't she? Sure does. Polly ought to be proud to have her for a daughter-in-law, don't you think? I sure do. You've been Polly's friend for a long time, haven't you? Up till this morning, yes. Ah, oh, now you're still her friend, Will. And you're Jock's friend, and you're my friend. Well, Doc, what are you leading up to? Well, now, I've been thinking about this all day, uh, from a medical standpoint. I don't want Jock telling her. They'd just get into one of those tearful scenes that mothers and children are famous for, and I don't want to tell her because I'm mean enough to throw in a lecture. Now, if there is any man in town who can break this news to Polly Wright, it's you, Will. Golly. Talk? Golly. Hi, Polly. Uh, can I come in? What is it, Will? Uh, well, first off, I, I want to tell you we had the story all set up to print, and we were going to do a big job on it, but uh, something came up. Can I tell you about it? All right. Sit down, Will. Thanks. What came up? Well, sir, a pretty girl. What? That's it, Polly. Prettiest, nicest girl you'd ever want to see come walking in my office. I don't understand what you're trying to say, Will. Uh, well, she's from New York, but she's married to a fellow right here in town. Go on. Well, he's an awful nice young fellow, Polly, and uh, this girl came here to see her husband. In your office? That's it. You see, she knew where to get in touch with him and all that, but she didn't dare phone him. So uh, she figured she'd advertise in the paper for him. But this doesn't make sense at all, Will. If she was married to the man, why didn't she call him up? Well, she wanted to, but she didn't dare. Because her husband has a mother who had other plans for her son. You see, this fellow's mother didn't know he was married. Oh. Now, he had good reason for not wiring or phoning his mother. In fact, he came here to tell her in person. But somehow things just didn't work out that way. You mean he couldn't tell his own mother he was married? Well, uh, she sets pretty big store by, uh, by... And he was her only son, and it was a perfectly natural thing, and uh, she had plans for him to marry someone else, and, well, the trouble is she told her plans before he could be able to talk to her. Oh, Will, is she really a nice girl? About the nicest you'll ever find, Polly. As a matter of fact, she's over docks right now if you want to see her. Oh. Oh, Will, I, I did make a mess of things planning so much for Jock. Polly, Polly, why don't you go see them both right now? They've been worried just as much as you have. Oh, all right, Will. Thanks, thanks. Doc, Doc, you still there? Yeah, right here, Will. Did, did you tell her? Yep. Do you need me? Nope. You mean... It's all right? Sure. You know, Doc, none of us realize how tough parents can be. Why, she just squared her shoulders, smiled a little bit, and got used to being a mother-in-law just like that. You have just heard Rogers of the Gazette, starring Mr. Will Rogers, Jr., with Georgia Ellis as Maggie Button. Tonight's story was written by E. Jack Newman, produced and transcribed by Norman MacDonald. Featured in the cast were Parley Bear as Doc and Mary McGovern as Jill, 
with Eleanor Tannen as Jenny, Sarah Selby as Polly, Sam Edwards as Jock, and Karen Steele as Melissa. This special music was composed by Renee Garagank and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. This is Roy Rowan speaking. What'd you think? Pretty good show, huh? That was Rogers of the Gazette. And that was originally broadcast on CBS back on July 29th, 1953. And I'd like to spend more time talking about Will Rogers. We don't have enough time this week. We will do it ahead. But send me an email, bob at boomerboulevard.com. And let me know if you'd like to hear more episodes. I hope you do. I think it's a good show. Now. No. As you can tell from the music, it is time to visit Dodge City, Kansas. Time to go back to the 1870s and meet up with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to meet Doc and Chester and Kitty and the whole gang on this episode of Gunsmoke that was originally broadcast March 11th, 1956. This is an episode, believe it or not, I've never played before. Somehow, it just got overlooked and it has outstanding sound quality. Really good. And it's a good episode. It's not among the greats, but it's it's suspenseful and there's a little bit of mystery in it and I think you're going to enjoy it. This one is entitled Bringing Down Father. And here it comes. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. (laughs) 
Smoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. You get caught in the rain last night, Matt? I never left the office, Doc. I stayed home, too. Yeah? For once. Ordinarily, bad weather brings a rash of broken legs and babies with it. All out in the country somewhere. Uh, You always told me living in the open is good for a man, Doc. I said sun is good for a man. Well, you'll get some sun next summer. And you'll complain just as hard about that. When I think I could have an office back in Baltimore. When nice, clean people come to see me. Yeah, but nobody needs you in Baltimore, Doc. They get sick there, too, don't they? <laughs> well, I don't know. I've never been there. You've never been? He's never been there. Hello, John. You wouldn't last two days in Baltimore, Matt. No? No. People are too polite and well-mannered. Well, you teach me what it's like, Doc, but uh, some other time. Ah, there, now, you see what I mean? Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> oh, oh, and Chester here. He could use a little refining, too. Well, now, don't get carried away, Doc. Good morning, Mr. Dillon. Oh, Doc. Good morning, Chester. Now, what are you doing out here, Chester? Oh, I got up early this morning. I right, so you could sit on the porch here and watch the street like an old man. I already swamped out the office, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, for the first time in two weeks. Maybe you ought to get up early every morning. Mm-mm. I've got too civilized for that. <laughs> He's got too civilized. Wait a minute. You didn't get up at all this morning. You were still up. Yes, sir. How much did you lose? Oh, I wasn't gambling. I was sitting talking to a little old gal I met, kindly keeping her out of the rain, uh-huh. you know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a guy. We know, don't we? Oh, yes. Yeah. And it sure rained a barrel last night, too, didn't it, Chester? It sure did, Doc. <laughs> uh, who's this? Some kid. i never seen him before, Mr. Dillon. You people tell me where I can uh, find the marshal? You done found him. <laughs> What's the trouble, son? My name's Gildon, Andy Gildon. Just come up from Texas with a herd. Oh, what's on your mind, honey? There's a man been shot, Marshal. An unarmed man. What? Up the river a ways, where we're holding the cattle. The trail boss shot him this morning before it got light. We put a guard on the boss. Uh, what's the name of this outfit? They're Star M cattle, Marshal. Star M? Then Harley Burke's the trail boss. He won't be for long. Not after this. Uh, Burke's a man of temper and he's pretty rough, but he's decent. It's hard to believe he'd shoot an unarmed man. Well, he did, Marshal. Is the man dead, son? He's unconscious. Has been right along. All right, let's get going, Doc. Where is the man, Andy? He's over yonder, behind that bush. There's a lot of bush around this camp. Suppose you show me. All right. I'm going to talk to Burke, Doc. You let me know what you find, huh? I will, man. Hey, he was 
the marshal. Yeah, that's right. Just look at the guard they got around Burke here, Mr. Dillon. Uh-huh. I set the men to hold him, Marshal. He ain't gonna get away. Now, who are you? I'm Roman, Jack Roman. You help run this outfit? No, I'm just a rider. Well, someone had to take over. All right, Roman, you can tell those men to fall back now. All right. Stand back now, you men. The law's here. Stand back. Now, hello, Burke. Marshal. Hey, tell me you shot a man. Oh, he shot him all right, Marshal. And Hodges wasn't even armed. I wasn't asking you, Roman. You gotta hear the truth. Burke had done nothing but fight with Hodges the whole trip. On his neck about something every minute. Go on, you gotta admit it, Burke. I had no use for him. You hated him. He was lazy and no good. Of course I hated him. Burke, I've known you a good many years. You're as rough a trail boss as there is. You're rock-headed and you drive the men as hard as you do yourself. And I've seen you be downright mean about it. Could be. I sure never figured you'd shoot a man. Yeah, surprised me too, Marshal. All right, tell me what happened. Well, it was raining. I'd been out with a guard. Only dry spot I could find when I come in was way over there by Hodges. I went to sleep, and he must have woke up and seen who it was. Then he come over and kicked me in the head. Hurt me bad, but... Somehow I got a bullet in him before I blacked out. You didn't know he was unarmed. What difference it make, Marshal? Make a lot of difference if he doesn't live. Doc here will know about that. No. Hello, Burke. Doc. Hello, Doc. How is he? He's dead. Burke. I know. I know. I'll get my stuff together and come with you, Marshal. Who's going to boss this outfit now? Oh, uh... Andy Gillen. Andy. He's just a kid. His pa owns his herd, Marshal. Oh. What do you want, Burke? Andy, your pa sent you on this drive to make a man out of you. Working for a murderer? Your boss now. Sell the herd, pay off the men, and get the rest of the money back to your pa. Can you do that? <laughs> I'll be right with you, Marshal. Fine boss he was. Hey, Roman, let's start moving them cattle down river. All righty. Let's go, you men. Well, what do you think, Doc? Well, Matt, that man Hodges was shot in the head. And by somebody who was lying on the ground. Oh, Burke admits doing it. Then I guess he did it all right. Yeah, but there's something he isn't telling me, Doc. And knowing Harley Burke, I'm going to have a hard time finding out what it is. Oh, uh, hey, Sam. Yeah, Marshal. Uh, bring me a beer, huh? Why, sure. <laughs> Evening, Marshal. Ah, oh, hello, Roman. You get Burke down to jail all right this morning? Yeah, he's in jail. If ever I seen a man earned a hanging, he's it. Oh? Uh, I take it you don't like him, Roman. We got along just fine, Marshal. Hey, you ain't seen Andy Gilden, have you? He's been sitting over there with Kitty. Where? Uh, no, there he goes out the door. Looks like he's pretty drunk, too. He is drunk. He's been hunting everywhere. Here you are, Marshal. Oh, thanks, Sam. I think I'll take that beer over to the table with me. Hello, Kitty. 
You sure take your time, Matt. No. What's wrong? You saw me sitting here with that drunken kid. Why didn't you come over? Well, Andy Gilden may be a kid, but his pa owns the Star M. And Andy's now boss of the outfit. Mm. I heard all about his pa. Yeah, he must be a rich man. Andy wasn't talking about his money. Oh? He hates him, Matt. I never heard anything like it. Oh, why? The old man's too strict, probably. Like sending him up the trail just to make a man out of him. Yeah. Now that hasn't hurt him, Kitty. Matt, I think that boy'd kill his pa if he had a chance. All he talked about was how he'd like to get back at him. What are you staring at me for? What? Oh, I, I'm sorry, Kitty. I, uh, I was just thinking. Thinking about what? I'm glad I talked to you, Kitty. Maybe now I can find out what Harley Burke's holding back from me. I sure don't understand you, Marshal. Oh, why not, Burke? Come in this morning, turned me out of jail. Now you're taking me down to the stock pins. What for? Well, I thought you'd like to know how young Gilden made out with the sale of those cattle. I think you're lying. Now, there he is with that fellow Ruman again. They seem to be pretty good friends, don't they? I guess. You just won't tell me anything, will you, Burke? I'll tell you anything you want to know, Marshal. Oh, yeah, sure. Good morning, Andy. Yeah. Ruman. What's Harley Burke doing out of jail? A man gets cramped in there. I was walking him around a little. Well, I ain't gonna be seen with no murder. Andy, I'll be in my room at the Dodge house should you want me. Okay. How'd you sell a herd, Andy? I sold it. You get a good price? It's no business of yours, Burke. Not no more. Now we can always find out from the agent, Andy. All right. I got $20,000. Payable tomorrow. Twenty-thousand's a fair price. Your pa'll be pleased. Why don't you take it to Mr. Bodkin at the bank tomorrow, Andy? He'll give you a note for it. I don't need no bank. And I don't need no advice either, Marshal. Now, look, Andy, you can't carry that money home in cash. Why not? Nobody does. There's too many jayhawkers and bushwhackers waiting along the trail. Now, you know that. I don't know nothing. Except you can leave me alone. Both of you. We're only trying to help, Andy. I'll do my job, and you do yours, Marshal. You go hang Harley Burke. Well, Burke? Well, the boy's kind of headstrong, Marshal. That's all you've got to tell me, huh? That's all. All right, then let's get back to jail. I want to find Andy before he talks to Roman Chester. It's been over a half hour already. Well, there's his room. If he's in it. Yeah, well, let's hope he is. Who is it? Open up, Andy. What do you want now, Marshal? Your gun. Here now. What are you taking my gun for? For Chester to hold on you while he's walking you to jail. Jail? Well, you're talking crazy, Marshal. Keep your voice down. 
Now, here's his gun, Chester. And you put him in a far cell, and you keep him quiet, huh? Real quiet. I understand. Come on, get moving. Oh, oh, now, look here. You don't shut up, I'll lump up your head with this gun. You can't arrest me. I ain't done nothing. Get moving. You can't do this. Of course I can't. Marshal. Uh, I'd like to talk to you, Roman. Sure, money. Roman, have you seen Andy Gilden in the last half hour? <laughs> For sure. You was there at the stock pen. Why? Well, a few minutes ago, he was seen leaving town, riding north. So? I saw him myself. He was riding awful fast, Roman. A lot of men ride out of town, Marshal. Maybe he's got a gal out the country somewhere. Yeah, maybe. Well, what you thinking? I was with the agent who bought the Star M herd. Yeah. He got the $20,000 up today, and he didn't have to wait till tomorrow. Say he was headed north? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Texas is south of here. Stealing that money. Stealing it from his own paw. Looks that way. Well, ain't you going after him, Marshal? Well, he's a gildan. I kind of look on it as a family matter, Roman. Uh, and I'm going after him. No, you're not. You go after him, there'll be a fight, maybe a killing. We'll let his paw worry I'm about I'm going him. after him, Marshal. You can't stop me. Can't I, Roman? Yeah, Marshal. You got Burke back in jail? Yeah. Well, I got something to say. And I want him to hear it, too. <laughs> Cells are out back, Roman, through that door there. All right. Burke, Roman's got something he wants both of us to hear. Roman, huh? Well, I've been waiting long enough. What do you mean? It was you who kicked me in the head and shot Hodges. You know what you're going to say? It was not me, done it. Of course it was. Now, don't be a fool, Burke. What'd I get out of it? I don't hate old man Gilden. I don't want to steal his money. Nobody stole his money. You mean you ain't heard? Heard what? Andy got paid off for them cattle today, and he rode out of town headed north. <laughs> he did, huh? And what's more, he told me he killed Hodges. He's lying, he... and I can prove it. They tricked us. Andy, they tricked us. They got us crossing each other. Roman killed him, and I can prove uh, it. Oh, I kill you for that. Roman. <laughs> Chester. Chester, he, he got him all right. Got him right in the head. He's dead. Yeah. What'd you let him do that for, Marshal? Well, he wouldn't have talked if I'd have disarmed him, Burke. I had to take a chance. Mm. Yeah, I guess you did. Maybe if you had talked, none of this would have happened. Well, I knew I didn't shoot that man, Marshal. But I knew the only way I'd ever find out who did was to just wait and see what they was after. Well, you knew they were in it together down at the stock pens. You knew they were going to keep the money. Yeah, but I didn't know which one was the killer. Well, it doesn't matter much now. Andy's dead and Roman will hang anyway. But why were you protecting the two of them? Why did you take the blame? 
Because I was afraid it might have been the kid that done it. Old man Gildon's the best friend I got in this world. I couldn't never have faced him if I'd brought his boy up here to hang. Now. Uh, I understand the boy hated him. But he didn't hate Andy, Marshal. All he wanted was for him to be a man. Well, something went wrong with that. Sure did. Burke. Yeah? You did all you could. When the old man hears the whole story, he... He'll know what a good friend you've been. You know, one of the most unpopular men on the frontier was the peace officer. Most everyone felt that they had some reason to dislike him. But next week, a man arrives in Dodge who wants to be Marshal. And that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were William Idelson, Lawrence Dobkin, and Vic Perrin. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. That one was originally broadcast on March the 11th, 1956. And you have no idea how many people have written me and said, when they get the podcast, they immediately fast forward to Gunsmoke at the end and listen to that first. Some of them don't listen to anything else. In fact, my good friend Mark Robinson, who I was just visiting, Carol and I were visiting, he and Ginger, his wife, out in California, he told me he does that. It's funny, Mark and I have been good friends for many, many years. I was best man at his wedding 50 years ago. So that tells you something. And we had not lost touch exactly, but it was one of those things where you'd only get in contact every few years, you know what I mean? And then, and then you, and we'd see each other like every 10 years or something. Cause we've been in St. Louis for 30, almost 35 years now. And Mark and Ginger live in Vista, California. 
Well, he contacted me one day, and, and in the middle of the conversation, he said, how's Boomer Boulevard going? And I said, what? Because I don't, I try not to mix business and pleasure, This, although this isn't business. This is my hobby. I don't make a penny off this. But he told me that he'd been listening for some time. <laughs> so you never know who's listening out there. That's why I would love it if you'd send me an email and let me know you're listening and where you're at. So wasn't that a great episode of Gunsmoke? And I told you about the sound quality. Never been played on our show before in, in 10 years. I don't know how I missed it, but I did. It was called Bringing Down Father. And of course, we'll have another episode of Gunsmoke next time we get together. That's it, everybody. We are short on time. So we'll be back next week with the archive show in two weeks with a brand new show. And um, do send me an email. Let me know what you think. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by. And I am so glad you met me.